1977, the woman who inherited the Brock's candy fortune vanished. Inconsistent stories, tales of horse thievery, and a lot of hinky stuff over the last 44 years has left this one an enduring, unsolved mystery. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome back to Crimelines. I will only say welcome back because if you are new, this is not the episode for you. This is part two of the Helen Brock disappearance, so you need to head back in the feed a couple of days to find part one. So listen to that first and then come back. When we left off, we had Helen Brock missing without a trace in early 1977. We had her houseman, Jack Matlick, telling a provably false story about where she was the weekend she went missing. And we have suspicion falling on both this houseman and Helen's younger sort of boyfriend, Richard Bailey. Helen had recently begun to suspect he had conned her in a few horse deals, and she may have been considering going to the authorities about it. But before she could do that, she disappeared. After her disappearance, Richard Bailey was contacted about this and asked what he knew. And he said he didn't know much more than anyone else. He was in Florida on the weekend Helen was last seen, expecting her to arrive on Saturday. When she didn't show up, he called the house in Chicago on Sunday, and Jack Matlick said she wasn't there, she was out to dinner. Richard called a couple more times with no response, so he assumed Helen had essentially ghosted him, and he moved on. Richard also denied ever swindling Helen. He said he did introduce her to sellers and trainers, of course, but he never knew she was getting a bad deal. He actually denied that she got a bad deal. He had no idea she was talking about going to the authorities about anything. They had been in touch up until she disappeared, and she hadn't said anything to him. Richard was able to prove his alibi of being in Florida that weekend, but that doesn't rule out a contract killing. And because of Helen's accidental ties to this horse-thieving underworld through Richard Bailey, that was looking like a possibility. But the investigators struggled to draw a straight line between Richard and Helen Brock's disappearance. The case had a faint glimmer of a breakthrough in 1978, a little more than a year after Helen Brock went missing, when the body of an elderly woman was found in Wentworth Woods, which is in the Chicago suburb of Calumet City. The initial thought was that this was Helen Brock, largely due to the obvious red and gray hair that looked like Helen's and the state of the remains looking like they had been there at least a year. The remains were missing fingertips and several teeth, so identifying it was going to be difficult. But when the Emmy finished his examination, he concluded this was not Helen Brock. The woman was a few inches shorter than Helen, and it appeared that some of the missing teeth were due to partial dentures, which Helen didn't have. 
The body was then buried in a pauper's grave with apparently minimal attempts to actually identify her beyond ruling her out as Helen Brock. Not surprisingly, this will come up again later. Pretty much everything in this case comes back up. Also happening around this time was a very, 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 very boring civil proceeding. It's come up before in cases that it's difficult when someone is missing because who pays the mortgage? Who controls the bank account? Who manages any businesses or investments? So now imagine that on the scale of millions of dollars with no spouse, parents, or adult children to take over. Frank did have children from his first marriage, but they were grown when he married Helen, so it wouldn't be automatically assumed that they would take control of the estate in Helen's absence. So there were proceedings to figure out what to do next, and that sparked a little bit of an investigation. So we are going to ignore the boring parts, of which there were many, and focus on what matters to the disappearance. In January 1978, 11 months after Helen was last seen, Jack Matlick sat for an on-the-record deposition with the various attorneys of the various people who had some interest in Helen's estate. His own attorney would not let him answer any questions directly related to Helen's disappearance. So we don't get a riveting retelling of his weird story about the weekend he, and only he, saw Helen Brock. We did learn, though, that Jack had stayed on as a caretaker of the property until December 1977, when he was fired by the person managing the finances at the time. This meant that on top of the two to three weeks Jack was alone in the house before he reported Helen missing, he was there for an additional nine months. That seems rather shocking to me when we figure that he was a person of interest, if not a full-blown suspect at that point, yet he had full access to what could have been seen as the crime scene. Oh, another thing he wouldn't talk about in this deposition were any of the checks that he cashed, which was smart because there was talk about charges being filed related to that. They didn't materialize, but there was at least some investigation done, and it will come up later. Anyway, so Jack claimed in this deposition that he saw a copy of Helen's will in the house in mid-1976. He said he didn't know everything that was in it, but that Helen said she intended to make her brother a millionaire. However, she didn't want his wife to have access to any of that money so she planned to put it in trust in Charles's name only. The rest of the fortune was going to go to various animal charities. Jack also claimed he dug the copy of the will out of a drawer and tried to give it to the police after Helen disappeared, but the police denied this ever happened. They had wanted to see the will themselves, and they weren't able to because the lawyer refused so it seems strange that they wouldn't remember that Jack tried to give them a copy. Jack said that he imagined the copy was still in a drawer in the house, probably in a nightstand where he last saw it, but that seemed unlikely to the attorneys. The house had been searched top 
to bottom by the police and then again by a private investigator. And the PI was specifically looking for financial and legal papers like a copy of the will, and he hadn't found it. Jack was then asked if he had gotten rid of or destroyed any of Helen's records. And Jack very carefully said, no records were destroyed. Now, the lawyer used his fine-tuned listening skills here, and he noticed that Jack specified records rather than just a blanket, no, I didn't destroy anything. So he followed up by asking Jack if he destroyed any papers at all, and Jack admitted to burning two old diaries and the automatic writings, those psychic writings we talked about in the last episode. Jack claimed he just did it because Helen instructed him to. And I have to say, this little event, this destruction of items, seems odd to me for a few reasons. First of all, why do it? Presumably, it's to cover something up. Even if most of the papers were automatic psychic writings, it wouldn't have been hard to slip something else in there without anyone noticing. But that leads to my second question on this. Let's say Jack did burn all this stuff to cover something up. Why did he purposely do it with an accomplice? He first asked Everett Moore, Helen's financial advisor, about burning things, and Everett said no. So when that didn't work, he waited until the next day when Helen's brother Charles came into town and then suggested to him that they do this. So why did Jack want someone to see him burning these things? Why not just destroy them in secret? I'm curious what you think about this because I have two thoughts on it. So thought number one was that Jack also burned Helen's diaries, which were something that people knew she had. Maybe there was something in there incriminating to him and he knew people would be looking for them. So by getting permission from someone else to burn the diaries, he wouldn't look as guilty when the question of where they are came up. Now, my second thought was that Jack is actually being honest about this. He destroyed them because Helen wanted him to. Because it's not like the journal Helen was last seen with was burned. That would be the one you'd expect anything about horse swindling or going to the authorities to be written down in. That one was never found. Her brother and Everett both confirmed it was not in the pile, and they knew which one it was based on the cover. So maybe Helen really did say, if anything happens to me, destroy these items, and Jack was doing as she wished. But that doesn't actually make Jack look any less guilty, because how did he know something had happened to her? Even those close to Helen didn't rush to the house when they heard she was missing because they assumed she was simply out of touch with them. Jack was the only one jumping to the conclusion that Helen would never be coming back. So while he may have been fulfilling her wishes, it doesn't make him look less guilty, and those are my thoughts on it. Feel free to reach out and let me know if you have a theory that I'm missing here. So Jack finished his deposition, again, wasn't able to answer anything about Helen's disappearance, so we didn't get a whole lot out of that, anything other than what I've already mentioned, and shortly afterwards, he moved to Pennsylvania. 
The next notable deposition was Charles Voorhees, Helen's brother. This is where I get the impression he was just not a very curious person, which I mentioned in part one. He was passive to what I consider an odd degree, considering that his sister was missing and millions of dollars were at stake. I wasn't even born when this happened, and I feel more invested than Charles Voorhees seemed to be. What we get from his deposition is that he took Jack Matlick at face value. He went along with burning Helen's things, not because Helen herself told him to, but that's what Jack said. He said Jack first told him he was worried Helen had amnesia somewhere out there, then later, a few weeks after that, said he was worried she was dead. Charles, though, he didn't have a theory of his own. He didn't get emotional when asked about her disappearance, and he didn't speculate. He didn't even seem all that concerned with what was happening with the money. Charles knew Helen intended to leave him a sizable sum, but he wasn't pushing to have her declared dead so that he could get it. He wasn't even all that worried about who was managing the fortune so that he could collect in full when the time did come. Now, Charles wasn't thrilled at being deposed. He did seem nervous at first when he sat down. He's in an unfamiliar office with a bunch of lawyers around. But otherwise, he again was taking everything in front of him at face value and didn't seem that interested in what was going to happen. And not much was going to happen if the lawyers couldn't figure out what Helen's wishes would have been in her absence. So they had worked on getting another authorized search done of the house, which happened in April 1978, in part to look again for any papers indicating what steps to take next. And what they found was kind of weird. In the kitchen, they almost immediately found in a drawer an envelope with Helen's name written on it. When they opened it, they found a copy of Helen's five-page will. It was unsigned and undated, though there was 1974 handwritten in the margin. Then, in an upstairs room that Helen used as pretty much a giant clothes closet, they found a suitcase standing upright and fully in plain sight. You couldn't miss it. The airline claim tag attached indicated it was a suitcase she brought from Rochester, Minnesota to Chicago. If you remember from part one, not finding the suitcase was part of why they didn't think Helen made it home. And now, here it was. Inside were receipts from the Mayo Clinic and the hotel if there needed to be any more proof that this was the missing luggage. So how is this possible? Things are missed on searches, sure. Happens all the time. But this house had been searched twice. And two key pieces of evidence that the police and the PI had specifically looked for were found almost immediately, and they were not concealed. This was clearly staged, but why? Why not have these things found earlier? Was there something in the will or in the suitcase someone didn't want the police to know about at first and then decided to plant them? 
These were not fake props intended for the lawyers to find. The will was a genuine copy of Helen's will, and the suitcase was the one she took to the Mayo Clinic. Whoever had them decided to either put them back into the house or move them from where they were not found so that they would be found. The suitcase being found didn't persuade everyone that Helen had gotten on that flight in Minnesota. To this day, there are people close to the case who still believe someone else flew on her ticket and checked the bag to sell the idea that she made it back to Chicago. But if that was the goal all along, why not have the suitcase ready to go for the first search or even the second, since it was supposedly part of convincing the police that Helen made it home? It doesn't make sense. Welcome to the Helen Brock case. So let's get back to the depositions. This next one was very quick. It was Richard Bailey. And on the advice of counsel, he didn't just refuse to answer any question about Helen's disappearance. He refused to answer any question, period. And by any question, I mean he refused to even say his name. His attorney finally said that they agreed to stipulate that he was Richard Bailey. Literally, all he had to do was say his name, and instead he had his attorney talking about stipulating to the fact that he was Richard Bailey. And when they next asked his address, Richard took the fifth. And then he took the fifth on every question after that. The deposition was nothing but an exercise in frustration for everyone involved. Richard didn't say anything at the deposition because obviously he knew he was a person of interest, if not a suspect, in the case. And pretty much everyone else knew it, too. He and Jack Matlick were both under a cloud of suspicion. And some people were not going to let Richard forget it. A year after the depositions, someone spray-painted, Richard Bailey knows where Mrs. Brock's body is. Stop him, please. It was written on the road near Helen's house, and Richard said he had similar messages graffitied at the stables he owned, but he never reported the vandalism to the police. He just painted over it. He said he just assumed it was a competitor who was trying to drive business away. At the end of this investigation that dealt with the civil case in 1980, it was recommended to the court that Helen Brock be declared dead, and then they could move forward with probate. But the judge said no, she was still a missing person, and he was going to have them wait the full seven years. So that's what Helen's brother Charles did. He waited until 1984 and had Helen declared legally dead. Her attorney finally produced the will, which was identical to the one found in her kitchen, except this one was signed. And this wouldn't be the Helen Brock saga if there wasn't some drama around this. Charles wanted the court to put Helen's date of death at February 17, 1977. That is the day she was last seen by someone who wasn't Jack Matlick. 
By this point, Charles had made no secret of the fact that he thought Jack was responsible for what happened to his sister, or he at least knew what happened. Charles also had another motive for having it set back in 1977. If Helen had been dead for seven years, the estate would have to pay interest on the inheritance that they hadn't paid him so far. The inheritance was half a million dollars in a trust fund. Seven years of interest on $500,000 was a significant amount. Helen's financial planner, Everett Moore, was managing the estate, and he asked that the date of death be established as February 21st, 1984, seven years to the day after Jack dropped Helen off at the airport, allegedly. That would take away the interest owed to Charles, but it would also validate Jack's statement that he saw her that entire weekend. Though these dates of death were suggested by the parties, the judge could have set whatever date he felt was correct. So he could have said Helen died in 1977, but set the date based on when Jack claimed he last saw her. Instead, the judge sided with Charles and set the date of death as February 17, 1977. He said there was no proof that Helen made it home or was alive after she left the Mayo Clinic. This isn't a beyond a reasonable doubt level conclusion, but I do find it interesting that a judge whose entire job was to determine when Helen Brock died looked at the evidence and didn't believe there was enough there to say that Jack was telling the truth. So it's not just me, some Midwest mom with a podcast, saying this because I read a book about it. The judge also didn't believe Jack. With Helen declared dead, it was time to settle the estate once and for all, but of course, this didn't go smoothly either. Jack Matlick had been left some money, $50,000, but the estate took him to court over those checks from 1977 that they believed were forged and accused him of stealing money and valuables over the nine months he was in the house after Helen disappeared. They were suing for a value of around $90,000, with about $75,000 of that being cash. Jack was initially going to fight this, but then the two sides reached a settlement. If Jack walked away from his claim to the $50,000, they would also drop their suit. Making a deal like this isn't necessarily an admission of guilt. Lawsuits are exhausting, and they're expensive. Jack may have just been cutting his losses. With Jack disinherited, Helen's brother was paid his trust fund, the usual administrative costs were paid, and then the bulk of Helen Brock's estate went to animal welfare charities. I'm not bringing up all of this estate drama simply because I'm filling time. The proceedings over what Jack owed to the estate and what the estate owed him gave us some interesting information. The source was Jack's ex-wife, Joyce, who he was married to at the time Helen disappeared. She testified that Jack would stay at the Glenview Mansion when Helen wasn't in town to do upkeep and essentially house it, but he very rarely stayed there overnight when Helen was home. So Jack was at the mansion when Helen went to the Mayo Clinic, 
with plans to go home after Helen came back on Thursday, February 17th. Jack had told the police that he called Joyce at 5.30 that evening to tell her that Helen was back, but he was still going to stay at the house to help her pack. But Joyce said that wasn't the content of that phone call. When Jack called, he said he wouldn't be home that night because Helen didn't come home as planned. Jack said he would be staying at her place until she did arrive. According to Joyce, Jack ended up coming home on Sunday the 20th and said Helen had only just made it back into town and was leaving again the next day for Florida. He spent the night at home, contradicting what he told the police about how he stayed at Helen's that entire weekend and drove her to the airport early Monday morning. Joyce did say that Jack got up very early on Monday and left the house. The point of Joyce's testimony for this court case was the money the estate claimed Jack stole because Joyce said that before Helen's disappearance, she would write checks when going grocery shopping, but afterwards, Jack always gave her cash instead and in large denominations like $100 bills. Jack never explained where the money was coming from, and Joyce didn't ask. The couple were nearing divorce at this point, and she didn't really care what was happening in his life. She was just glad that he was living at Helen's mansion and not in the home. If Joyce's story is accurate, it makes me think Helen didn't make it home after the Mayo Clinic, but maybe Jack didn't know what was going on at first. That's why he told his wife he was waiting for her to get back. But then he was roped into this cover-up over the weekend through bribery or fear. That's just one of my many theories on how this could have gone down. Anyway, that gets us up to the late 1980s, when we have even more developments, huge ones, because unlike the vast majority of cold cases I have covered on this podcast, this one had active investigations and or civil court proceedings going on for about 15 years straight. So let's start with a new name, Maurice Ferguson. Maurice had been a cellmate of Silas Jane in the 1970s. Silas was the horse guy who was in jail for a conspiracy to murder his brother. We talked about him in part one. Silas and Richard Bailey were connected through their Chicago-area horse-related scams. When Silas was paroled in 1979, according to Maurice, he left jail promising Maurice a job when he got out. Later that same year, Maurice was released, and he went to find Silas to ask about that job. The job Silas had for him was to move the remains of a woman from where they were hidden at a stable and then rebury them elsewhere, which Maurice did. He didn't know who the woman was, except that Silas allegedly called her the Candy Lady. Maurice managed to stay out of prison for 27 whole days before he was arrested again, this time for charges out of Mississippi. The police made note of his connection to Silas Jane at the time, and they interviewed him. Maurice told the story about moving the body, and twice he led investigators to places in Illinois as the burial spot. And twice they found nothing. So fast forward to 1987, and Maurice came forward saying 
he was ready now to lead the police to the real location of the body. Or a solid approximation. Maurice said he buried the remains in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. It was a field either in or near a cemetery. And if they could figure out which cemetery, Maurice knew exactly where the spot was. The problem was he couldn't remember the name of the cemetery. So fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So after two fake leads, why were they believing him now? According to Maurice, it was because of a major change in circumstance. And by that, he means Silas Jane died in July 1987. Maurice claimed he was too scared of Silas to give the real location of Helen's remains. But now Silas was dead and he was ready to make it right. So the authorities bought the story enough that Maurice was given a pass to leave the Mississippi prison where he was serving time for armed robbery. And they flew him under guard to Minnesota. The police drove him around to cemeteries, none of which were the right one that he recognized. And the authorities eventually concluded that Maurice had, in fact, fooled them a third time. They believe that Maurice did this to essentially get a vacation from his 35-year prison sentence. But the idea of Silas Jane being involved did not come from Maurice. The authorities were already looking into it, which is why they interviewed him to begin with. Silas was in prison at the time Helen disappeared, and he was actually in prison at the time she bought the horses that were so drastically overvalued. So his alibi for all the crimes against Helen was airtight. He was in prison. Except this horse scheming business wasn't happening in isolated incidents. It was part of a larger organized crime ring. And as happens in situations like this, if one domino falls, it can take out everyone around it. If Helen went to the authorities about getting cheated by Richard Bailey and or the people working with him, it could easily trigger an investigation that would land at Silas Jane's front door. And while his front door was, at the time, prison bars, Silas had been sentenced to 20 years with parole eligibility after six. So roughly 1978, he would be up for parole. If he was implicated in the horse schemes that Helen was threatening to go to the police over, he would not have a shot at parole. He would not be able to get out until at least the investigation was over. And depending on what this investigation found, Silas could have stayed behind bars for decades. Instead, Helen Brock disappeared, no complaint was filed, and Silas Jane was paroled two years later. And if we say that Helen was killed because of this horse stuff and it was a hit ordered by a mastermind, and we put Silas Jane and Richard Bailey side by side as suspects, I have to say Silas looks more likely. He has far more accusations of being involved in murder plots than Richard Bailey has. As far as I can tell, Helen's disappearance is the only possible murder linked to Richard. But Silas has five or six linked to him, including a conviction. Silas Jane had his own brother killed in front of family on his nephew's birthday. 
because the brother crossed him, ordering the killing of a woman he didn't even know to make sure he still had a shot at parole? Absolutely something I think Silas Jane would have done. There's no doubt in my mind he was capable of it. That doesn't mean he did it, but it's definitely in his wheelhouse. Richard Bailey, on the other hand, he was a con, yes. But even when his schemes started closing in on him in the late 80s and early 90s, he didn't kill anyone. In fact, he went to prison because he left the scammed people alive. So let's go ahead and get into that because that's another twist in this case. In the late 1980s, a woman went to the police to file a complaint saying that Richard Bailey had scammed her in essentially the same way he allegedly conned Helen Brock. When the police looked into it, they realized that while Richard had no criminal charges in his past related to this, there were a lot of civil cases where people sued him to get their money back. In 1989, the investigators approached the U.S. Attorney's Office. They did not believe this was just a civil matter, but it was more like racketeering. The scams did include phone calls that crossed state lines, making it possibly a federal wire fraud case, which would give the federal government jurisdiction. An assistant U.S. attorney named Stephen Miller spoke with the investigators and heard Richard Bailey's name for the first time. When they told him that Richard was tied up with the Helen Brock disappearance, AUSA Miller decided to investigate Helen's murder alongside the fraud case. Miller had come up with a very basic approach to solving homicides like this. He said it's basically follow the money and solve the murder. But following the money is sometimes a windy path, so this investigation took five years. One step was to exhume the Jane Doe found in the woods back in 1978 and confirm that she was not Helen Brock. So in 1990, they identified where she was in the pauper's grave and brought her to the Emmy's office. And that's where they found the head was missing. The Emmy looked through the records from 12 years before to try to find out what was going on. Had they sent it off to an external lab for some better analysis? That seemed possible, but there was no record of that. Without the head, it seems suspicious, like someone purposely got rid of it to prevent an exhumation from later identifying her. But the county ME basically said that this was not Helen Brock in 1978, and it wasn't Helen Brock in 1990, head or no head. But for many, including myself, There's still a question mark here. The woman continues to be unidentified. Another thing AUSA Miller did was send word out to law enforcement agencies that if they ended up with a case that had any shady horse business to let them know, they knew this web stretched beyond the Chicago area. And a tip came in that led investigators to look at a man named Tom Burns. He was arrested in Florida in 1991. Now, he was part of a different type of horse fraud scheme. This was an insurance scheme, and it was pretty awful. People would hire him to kill their horses in a way that would look like natural causes so that they could collect the insurance money. When he was arrested, Tom Burns realized that all of his rich clients had left him high and dry to take the fall. No one would even hire a good attorney for him. So he spent the currency he had, and that was 
information, he sold them all out. 36 people were arrested for their roles in this insurance fraud. 35 of them were convicted. In exchange for his cooperation, Tom only spent a year in jail. So this is basically saying Tom Burns was in a talkative mood when AUSA Miller flew down to Florida to chat with him. Tom didn't know anything about Helen, but he did give more names of more people involved in the dark side of the horse business. And following one name after another led them to a large animal veterinarian who played a small role in the scams, but big enough to have some information he was willing to share to save himself. He made it clear that Richard Bailey was basically the pretty face in the game. He was the golden tongue who pitched the sale. The people behind him were the real players, and they were the dangerous people. And yes, Silas Jane was one of them. Then in 1992, the investigators got another tip from another local law enforcement agency about someone who was involved in a horse swindle. This guy was out in Sacramento, but he did have ties to Chicago, and his name was Joe Plemons. This was a fortunate call because the investigators in Chicago had been trying to track him down. His name had already come up in their conversations with other people. And now he was in custody in Florida, so they flew out there to talk to him. And Joe had a pretty incriminating story to tell. He claimed that in early 1977, he had lunch with Richard Bailey and another friend named Kenneth Hansen. Kenneth would later be convicted of murdering three boys. That's another story for another day. I bring it up only to give you an idea of the people Richard was hanging around with. And through two degrees of separation, they're connected to Helen Brock. After this lunch, Richard said something about the candy lady not being so sweet anymore and that he was looking for someone to take care of the situation. He offered $5,000 to whichever of the men would kill her. Kenneth, according to Joe, said he wouldn't kill an old lady. And Richard turned to Joe and asked him. Joe also turned him down. He didn't kill anyone. So while this didn't get the investigators to the person hired to kill Helen, it did give them what they believed was a credible story about Richard looking for a hitman shortly before she went missing. Along with even more people ready to flip on Richard for the swindling and the fraud aspects of the investigation, a grand jury indicted him in 1994 on 29 counts. They included all the fraud-related crimes as well as conspiring, soliciting, and causing the murder of Helen Voorhees Brock. Several other people were indicted, but only in the financial crimes. Richard Bailey was the only one charged with murder. Richard then made a calculated choice. In the spring of 1995, he opted to admit to conning some of the women and he pleaded guilty to some of the racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering charges. Not all of them, but 16 of them. But he would not plead guilty to anything related to Helen Brock, not conning her and not killing her. I've never encountered a case like this before, so I reread what happened next in multiple sources to make sure I wasn't confused. 
they did not take Richard Bailey to trial on the counts he pleaded not guilty to. Instead, because he pleaded guilty on some charges, the whole case was moved to the sentencing phase. The judge would decide, based on a preponderance of the evidence, if Richard was guilty for the rest of the charges, and that included the murder charge, and then the judge would sentence him accordingly. Maybe Richard calculated his age into this equation. At this point, he was 65 years old. I'm sure he hoped for a lighter sentence because he pleaded guilty and took responsibility for more than half the charges. Also, an experienced judge might find the circumstantial evidence for murder a lot less persuasive than a jury of his peers. Richard certainly didn't make a sympathetic defendant because he was honestly not a very good person. There had to have been a fear that the jury's emotional response to him swindling elderly ladies out of their life savings would sway their verdict on the murder charge. His attorney said they had nothing to gain by going to trial. This was the best shot at Richard living to see the end of his prison sentence. At the sentencing hearing, which lasted two weeks, victims of Richard's schemes did testify about how he would disappear once the money ran out, leaving some of them destitute. Some testified about how Richard had been physically violent and made threats against them and their families. And as to why the other victims weren't killed when they were threatening to go to the authorities or did go to the authorities or did file a civil suit, the prosecution said they were not the threat to him that Helen Brock was. They had money, but they didn't have candy fortune heiress money. They didn't have the connections or the societal station to really push a case, but Helen did. Helen, according to the prosecution, intended to send Richard Bailey to prison for a long time. The defense countered that Richard didn't even sell Helen the horses. His brother did. And the horses were not worthless. Helen had won purses in some of the races because her horse would at least place, even if they didn't win. And according to them, there was no evidence Helen was looking to press charges against Richard. Just six weeks before her disappearance, she brought Richard to New York City with her so they could celebrate New Year's Eve together. We do have to remember that in this proceeding, the burden was lowered from beyond a reasonable doubt to a preponderance of the evidence. The judge had to simply decide, was it more likely than not that Richard Bailey had something to do with planning and or carrying out Helen Brock's murder? The answer, according to the judge, was yes, and he handed down a life sentence. But then the judge realized that that sentence was outside of the guidelines, so he changed it to a 30-year sentence, which translated to around 25 years with good behavior. Richard Bailey would have to live to be 90 years old to ever be released from prison, unless he was successful on appeal, and his appellate attorney was the one and only Kathleen Zellner. This appeal had to do with someone we've already discussed, Joe Plemons. See, everything in this case comes back around. I hope you've been taking notes. But if you haven't, I'll remind you that Joe was the guy 
who said Richard offered him $5,000 to kill Helen. Joe testified to this at Richard's sentencing hearing, but 10 years later, in 2005, Kathleen Zellner filed an appeal because Joe Plemons recanted. His new story was that there were around 10 people who conspired to kill Helen. The people giving the orders were Silas Jane and one of his nephews. Joe implicated a number of the people in the crime by name, including a police officer, but none of them named were Richard Bailey. Two of them were Kenneth Hansen, the child killer, and his brother, Kurt. Joe also said there was a woman involved in the plot, someone he did not know by name. However, she was the one who used Helen's plane ticket from Rochester, Minnesota to Chicago, but that Helen had actually been driven back to Chicago. Joe got a call from Kenneth Hansen in February 1977, asking him to meet at a stable at one in the morning because he needed help with something. Joe assumed, since it was that late at night, that it was something criminal, but he was thinking something like stolen tractors. When he got there, he and Kenneth waited until a Cadillac pulled in. Kurt Hansen opened the trunk, and there was Helen Brock's body. She had been beaten and wrapped in a blanket. Joe was told that they had to move the body to a station wagon, so he helped by grabbing her feet. Kenneth Hansen thought he heard Helen moan, though Joe didn't hear it. They dropped her on the ground, and Kurt gave Joe a gun. He told him to shoot Helen. Joe hesitated, but Kurt pointed a shotgun at him and told him to do it, or there would be two bodies in the station wagon. Joe, telling himself that Helen was already dead and he was in fear for his own life, shot into the blanket twice. They then put the body in the station wagon and drove it out to a steel mill in Gary, Indiana, which is not far from Chicago. With the help of two men working at the mill, the body was then incinerated. Joe said he came forward with this new story nearly 30 years later because he was in failing health and he couldn't go to the grave with this on his conscience. So Joe Plemons, who testified that Richard Bailey wanted Helen dead and was looking for someone to do it, was now saying that he knew exactly what happened to Helen, who was involved in it, and that it wasn't Richard Bailey. Joe's story did have some credibility behind it. It more or less fit with the prevailing theory of the crime, even if he didn't name all of the same actors. However, a confession is only as good as the evidence supporting it, and while there really wasn't much evidence here, the only thing Joe could provide to back up what he said was a ruby ring he claimed slid off of Helen's finger when they moved the body. He kept it and turned it over to the police. There was no way to prove it was Helen's. I'm assuming it didn't show up on some itemized insurance list or in a photograph of her. DNA tests were run, but they didn't help. Not that you would expect them to, figuring this ring was handled for nearly 30 years after it was last possibly on Helen's finger. The friends and family who were still around in 2005 couldn't 100% identify it as one of Helen's rings. As for the people Joe Plemons named, they apparently all denied involvement. This new story of Joe Plemons was what Richard Bailey appealed on. 
new evidence that other people had done this. The appeal basically said it is no longer more probable than not that Richard did it with Joe changing his story so drastically and they wanted a new sentencing hearing. But the appellate court said the new evidence doesn't clearly prove Richard was innocent of conspiring in the murder, and they denied his request. And remember how I said Richard Bailey would have to live to be 90 years old to ever see the outside of a prison? Well, that's exactly what happened. Richard Bailey was released in October 2019. And Richard has maintained his innocence. Even if this case was miraculously cracked tomorrow, little would be done. The majority of the people implicated in the crime, with the exception of Richard Bailey, who already went to prison for it, have died. This case is a mess of theories and speculation and conflicting and changing statements. But no matter what theory makes the most sense to you, the one thing that is clear in this case is that most, if not all, of the people involved in the murder of Helen Brock and the cover-up got away with it. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. Hello? Hello? I'm podcasting. Yes, but I'm hungry. You came downstairs with a flashlight and a bat to tell me you're hungry? Yeah, because monsters. I have a, I have a flashlight so I can see a monster. Oh, monsters down here in my podcast studio. That I mean, that's fair. Let's go get you something to eat.